Museum of Impossible Loves. If you look at your complimentary trifold visitors map, you will see that we are currently standing in the foyer of tremulous awakenings. The skeletons on your right represent the schoolyard Aphrodites of my youth and are made of fiberglass and plaster, their poses based on clandestine Polaroids from my own private collection. The ballerina, one Mary Lou Swenson, enchanted me for many years at my sister's dance recitals, her most memorable performance, a breathtaking solo to Tchaikovsky's Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Ever after, the merest tinkle of a Celesta deluges my heart with trembling, wistfulness, and an insatiable desire for candied dates. Now, if you will follow me to the West Wing, we shall explore our first exhibit, entitled Unreturned Ardor, Adolescent Longing, 1989-1995. Encased behind glass are aborted communiques to the objects of my affection, circa grades 7 through 12, on mediums ranging from paper napkin to 16 bond wide rule loose leaf, to page 37 of Family Life for Teens, Our Changing Bodies. Our most popular collection, the Dear Marilyn series, paints a fascinating portrait of my first hormonal stirrings, the tentative overtures of freshman year, the Petrarchan sonnets written during 10th grade English, the early 90s pop lyrics giving way to wrist-slitting Radiohead, and the final flurry of senior year scrawlings that resemble some strange, incoherent cuneiform. Thankfully, none of these letters were ever sent, and their internment in our museum ensures their appreciation by innumerable generations to come. Once you have finished perusing Unreturned Ardor, I invite you to join me behind the velvet curtains for a looped screening of My Hero, How Can I Ever Repay You, a self-made claymation feature based on my teenage nocturnal fantasies. Though the female ingenues change, first lovely Maya Remington, then Weiwei from Advanced Physics, then the countergirl at Dairy Queen, the plot is the same. The rampage of the Komodo dragons, the daring rescue of my beloved, the escape to her half-lit bedroom, and the thrilling libidinous climax, which, in deference to our younger viewers, consists of a quick fade to black and the music, Val Green. As an aside, the sequel, Can You Help Me With My Halter Straps, is currently in post-production and slated for a November 2007 release in the museum gift shop. While everyone is taking his or her seat, allow me to add a modicum of director's commentary to the images now flickering before you. In this segment, the damsel in distress is Angeline Baker, whose sensuous flugelhorn and see-through spandex were the crowning glories of our high school jazz band. Though our saxophones couldn't swing and our bassist was dyslexic and our drummer only had one arm, Angeline was an absolute revelation and we were frequently bombarded with roses and expensive Swiss chocolate whenever she soloed on My Funny Valentine. It was common knowledge that Angeline had a predilection for senior athletes, but that didn't deter me and my bandmates from aggressively vying for her affections. Jazz rehearsals became a war of mating calls, 
and we treated every solo as a battle for Angeline's heart. Unfortunately, we were all terrible, especially I, whose plane sounded like a moving company dropping a Steinway down the stairs, so we could only passive-aggressively curse our instruments as Angeline dated a succession of varsity hockey players. I tried to stoically soldier on, but whenever we played Chattanooga Choo Choo and Angeline arched her back for the shout chorus, it was all I could do not to stick my head inside the school's Yamaha and pummel myself to death with the piano lid. Anyway, in this scene, I'm fighting off the fearsome Komodo dragons, who were made of plastilina modeling clay and shot at 12 frames per second, in the style of Will Vinton. For those of you unfamiliar with claymation, it is a process wherein hundreds of desolate, godless man-hours are converted into 5-10 to 10 minutes of delightful whimsy. When high school groups tour the museum, I often ask for their interpretations of the Komodo dragon's significance, and the most popular responses are anxiety, self-doubt, failure, and impotence. Personally, I believe that they represent the jocks and seniors and younger-looking janitors who slept with every teenage girl I ever desired, but that is neither here nor there. Back to the film, I dispatch the Komodo dragons with a combination of Kung Fu and Korean Jiu Jitsu and rush to the side of my sweet Angeline, who looks stunning in spandex, as always. We travel via motorcycle montage to her candlelit bedroom, and a baby grand materializes on her carpet, allowing me to play a devastating interpretation of blue and green as Angeline swoons on the love seat beside me. Here, in the dream, I make no mistakes. I believe in every note. I caress the keys with tenderness and grace and harmonize the contents of my soul. In the dream, my posture is better, my complexion clearer, and my hands don't involuntarily shake, even when Angeline takes them and guides them across her face, down her sternum, over her bare abdomen. My fingers continue to tap against her skin, plain, my foolish heart, and satin doll, lover come back to me, and she sighs and sways to the percussion's sensuous suggestions. In glorious stop motion, our clay bodies fuse, the screen fades to black, and on comes Al Green, singing, take me to the river, until the dream is over, and the next one can begin.
was a menu writer. He told you your steak was savory, your risotto zesty, the cheese fries he assured you were world famous, the pecan pie sinful. After you mentioned your interest in Shakespeare and Milton, he wrote his first sonnet. It was entitled Mushroom Swiss Burger and featured a particularly romantic passage about the caramelized onions. You told him you had a thing for men who wrote in iambic pentameter and suggested a date at the planetarium. He kissed you during the meteor shower and described your lips as succulent and full of flavor. In your romances salad days, there were always surprises. A soup of the day sestina, a chili dog and cane, a children's menu and free verse. You gave him the Robert Fagel's translation of the Odyssey, and he wrote his first epic, a sprawling 500-page meditation on baby back ribs. When you wore your marabou trim chemise, he pronounced you mouth-watering. When you made love, he called you creamy and delicious. You moved in together in the fall. It was nice at first, with the side salad haikus and the drink specials and dactylic hexameter, but little by little, the menu lost its luster, succumbing to monotony and cliché. At a dinner party, he compared you to strawberry cheesecake, and you recoiled with embarrassment. In bed, he described your skin as moist and buttery, and you withered from his touch. The first casualty was the cashew chicken. It was characterized as dull, lifeless, a victim of betrayal and indifference. Next was the seafood Alfredo, a slow, sepulchral march toward death. After a particularly nasty fight, in which the good china was shattered against the armoire, he revised the appetizer section to be textless and splattered with his own blood. Corporate handed him his notice, and you stayed with a friend, avoiding the restaurant, ordering takeout when necessary. In the winter, you moved back to Wisconsin. Your parents consoled you with ice cream and Thin Mints and store-bought chocolate brownies, the kind where everyone on the packaging smiles and salivates and smears his or her face with frosting. Good and gooey, said the boxes, rich and tasty. You read the ingredients, and they sounded mildly terrifying. On Christmas, you called him impulsively. He didn't pick up. Your family ate at the Chinese restaurant with the bad English translations. Cashew not, the fruit and chance, burn the spring chicken. You ordered the fried beef rice with scorn and egg, and politely requested a fork. Back home, you stayed in your old room, sleeping on the mattress where you first attempted carnal love. The walls still plastered with concert posters and Polaroids, your doorway was like a time machine, except everything was dusty, cobwebbed, faded by sunlight. Old friends called and you met up at a cafe, sharing post-collegiate war stories over soup and sandwiches and the world's best coffee. You spilled the world's best coffee all over your blouse and drove to a dry cleaners that was no longer in business. 
On New Year's, you made a fool of yourself with Nex Flame and spent January avoiding his phone calls. Parental nudging became parental elbowing, and you promised to find a job and stop sulking in your room with the Thin Mints. In interviews, you were asked where you saw yourself in five years, and you imagined a room very much like this one, with tasteful carpeting and ergonomic chairs and the scent of corporate lemon. You shook a series of uncalloused hands, and when the phone never rang, you returned to Miami. The flight back to Florida was uneventful. The skies were cloudless, and the in-flight movie was The Corpse Bride. Your stomach growled, but the lunches cost $11, so you may do with the complimentary cheddar nips, which claimed to be impossibly cheesy. While the adjacent businessmen discussed tech stocks, you thumbed through your in-flight magazine and read articles on business attire, Mumbai, Oscar de la Hoya. Nibbling a cheddar nip every hundred miles, you listlessly watched The Corpse Bride on a vanishing line of shrinking screens and fell asleep during the plane's final descent. Back in Miami, you returned to your old job, your old apartment building, and little by little, you forgot you had ever left. After three months, you even returned to your favorite restaurant, which offered the same food but a redesigned menu, with italic script and watercolors of the Mediterranean coast. Whenever you were offered a menu, you politely declined and ordered from memory, impressing the waitstaff by flawlessly reciting the appetizers, the entrees, the soups, salads, and drink specials. Crisp romaine lettuce tossed in our special Caesar dressing, you would say. Rich, creamy cheesecake over strawberry sauce. Savory and spicy. Sweet and sour. Lean. Tender. Guiltless. Now that we have looped back to Angeline and the Komodo Dragons, it is time for our next exhibit, entitled Groping in the Dark, The College Years. College is a special time in a young man's life, a time spent broadening horizons, cultivating friendships, and developing the skills that will make him a leader in his field. At least, that is what the pleasantly modulated voice in the admissions video said. Another school of thought is that college is a time for vomiting in communal showers, rationalizing sexual misconduct, and googling chlamydia during finals. Groping in the dark illustrates this latter interpretation. Our first point of interest is the 1992 Chevy Lumina, in which I first made love. In Hollywood coming-of-age films, this loss of innocence is treated with extreme reverence, softly lit and accompanied by the strums of a singer-songwriter, 
but in my case, I had to make do with the harsh glare of a Denny's parking lot and threnody to the victims of Hiroshima. My partner in this endeavor was a co-ed of unknown provenance whose slurred speech made proper introductions impossible, so in the museum literature she is typically referred to as Girl A, the first of seven such alphabeticals in our museum. In the interest of authenticity, the interior has been scented with mildew, the carpeting stained with Miller Lite, and the rear seats fully retracted, allowing my enamorada and I to explore each other's bodies in semi-discomfort on the floor. In addition, astute observers will note that the rear door slides open once every five minutes, representing the total elapsed time between the removal and retrieval of our clothes. After Girl A are Girls B through E, about whom little is known save for their low self-esteem and affinity for Southern comfort. I negotiated brief intimacies with said girls during what is popularly known as my Blue Period, the product of my failed courting of a Florida Bright Futures scholar. The scholar, a fiercely intelligent native of Port St. Lucie, shared my interests in minimalism, pointillism, and Elliot Smith, but when I made an amorous advance while showing her Steve Reich's electric counterpoint in my dorm room, she mumbled something about organic chemistry homework and stopped returning my phone calls. Months later, I saw her at a Surratt exhibition, and she histrionically squinted whenever I came near, as if hoping to lose me amid the tiny, colored dots. Exiting the blue period, we now enter the Hall of Accidental Conception, detailing my unfortunate liaison with a sophomore anthropology major. While studying for an exam on the sexual customs of pre-agricultural societies, one thing led to another, and by library closing, she was pulling my hair and screaming the names of pygmy tribes in post-coital rapture. She informed me she was pregnant during a film strip on the Mbuti of the Ituri forest, and I agreed to drive her to the abortion clinic, where the doctors removed the fetus we posthumously named Melvin. There are some who say that Melvin haunts this very museum, turning off light switches and adjusting the AC, but he has never been photographed and is assumed to be apocryphal. Even so, I keep my eyes peeled for both Melvin and his mother, who transferred to a school in the Northeast and vanished like her fetus from my life. As you might imagine, it was high time for blue period number two, and a quick journey down the hall takes us to the theater of self-pity, the online pornography arcade, and the recreational drug use kiosk. In these three exhibits are educational coin machines, which take both quarters and Museum of Impossible Love's tokens, challenge our visitors to reach rock bottom in the fastest time possible. Rock bottom represented by my weekend in a backdoor buddy's dumpster. Rendered in glorious 8-bit VGA by local computer science students, the Blue Period No. 2's arcade-style amusements combine a harrowing account of my emotional collapse with colorful side-scrolling fun in the tradition of early Super Mario Brothers, as well as several first-person shooters and the Pac-Man style avoiding eye contact with women. 
whereas my own misadventures resulted in 12-step therapy and academic probation, the high scores of visitors will yield flashing lights and regurgitated paper tickets, which may be redeemed for prizes at the conclusion of the tour. When you have sated yourself with my suffering or simply run out of quarters, you may bid adieu to the blue period and embark on the college year's final grope, just a hop, skip, and jump past the fountain of unanswered wishes. In this multimedia presentation, set to Broadway favorites like Gary Indiana and There Is Nothing Like a Dame, singing puppets recreate my brief flirtation with a film major as bar graphs flash on a canvas screen, illustrating how our meeting at a Wizard of Oz restoration led to weekly platonic cinema outings in which I attempted to focus on the subtitles instead of the maddening guavaness of her body lotion. After a steering ensemble rendition of Edelweiss, my puppet resolves to reveal his true feelings to the film major after a special screening of Werner Herzog eats his shoe, and when the lights go up, he takes her three-fingered hand and announces he's madly, irreparably in love with her. When this actually happened, in real life, my ears were ringing too loudly to understand her reply, but the final words were, of course, we'll always be friends, which the museum's PA system announces every hour on the hour. Girls F and G soon followed in the bathroom of a Texaco gas station. There's a musician named Black Bart who only knows one song. You can hire him for any occasion, weddings, dances, bar and bat mitzvahs, and he will show up with a guitar and a portable PA system and play the song repeatedly until the obligatory X number of music hours have transpired. At the annual Holstein Fest, it was four. His promotional literature indicates that he takes requests, which is true, he does accept them. But after laughing heartily and saying, sure, I know life in the fast lane, or of course I know Moon River, he'll launch into an identical rendition of the song he just performed, and gradually his audience will lose any hope of hearing the Eagles or Henry Mancini, and gather around the alcoholic drinks, if they are available. When not providing the soundtrack for post-matrimonial revelry or some Jewish kid's passage into manhood, Black Bart busks for change on the corner of MLK and Maine, where his shtick is more effective as hardly anyone listens to him for more than 10 seconds. Sometimes a tourist or homeless man rests on a nearby bench and asks him if he knows any other songs, but Black Bart just stares at them blankly and says, that was Cleveland in the bottle. Now here's a little ditty I call Johnny Shoeshine. The thing is, the song is actually really good. It's a love song, I think. But the guy's such a mess, people just file it under ramblings of a madman, toss some sympathy nickels, 
and go on their merry way down the street, wagging their briefcases and jabbering to their cell phones. What the song really needs, of course, is the proper interpreter, the Dion Warwick to Bart's Burt Bacharach, but the high school proms and cattle festivals of my hometown aren't exactly crawling with smoky-voiced chantuses and Armani-clad record executives, so Bart's permanent obscurity is pretty much insured. Still, when I was 16 and starry-eyed, I figured someone had to carry on the song's legacy, so I brought a notebook to MLK in Maine and wrote down the lyrics and chord changes as Bart performed for the transient, coffee-carrying masses. I had just started guitar lessons, my repertoire was basically Smells Like Teen Spirits and Wild Thing, but the song was deceptively simple, just G and C and E minor, and I had it down by the fifth repetition when its title was Mississippi Shakedown. The lyrics are cryptic and involve crop dusting and gymnastics, but the underlying message, I feel, is universally resonant and best encapsulated by the poignant sentiment of the refrain. I am lonely, it goes. Please let me sing you my song. At age 16, I was pathetic and awkward and plenty lonely, so Bart's song became a sort of mantra. Saturday nights, I lay on my bed, fantasized about pretty Mary Kay and driver's ed, and played the song over and over, not unlike Black Bart at a high school gymnasium or Polish-American community hall. No one likes me, E minor chord. I might as well die, E minor chord. The song was very therapeutic, sparing me from other expressions of teen angst such as painkiller addiction or heavy black eyeliner, but unfortunately, it didn't save me from my hermetic existence, as my audience never grew beyond my bedroom walls and a 23 by 35 inch poster of Jennifer Love Hewitt. One night, I resolved to perform the song at the Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville Tuesday night open mic and melt the hearts of the college-age waitresses, but Jennifer Love Hewitt just shook her head and said, Who do you think you're kidding? And I struck another E minor chord, and that was that. Toward the end of sophomore year, I started bringing my guitar to school and playing the song in a vacant stairwell during lunch, as opposed to my usual routine of wandering the halls with feigned determination. The stairwell was chosen both for its remote location and its acoustics, which drenched my voice in reverb and made me sound like a heartbroken, whiskey-soaked rockabilly singer. Sometimes, when I couldn't bear the thought of enduring another lecture on ionic versus covalent bonds or the ancient Greek concept of erite, I'd remain in the stairwell for the rest of the day and strum Bart's ambiguously titled masterpiece until my fingers bled, which caused my mom to become worried and conspicuously place self-mutilation pamphlets throughout the living room. Eventually, though, I developed heavy calluses and the bleeding stopped, and the pamphlets were replaced by Better Homes and Gardens and Oprah the Magazine, and I was once again allowed to use a steak knife at the dinner table. The last week of school, the janitors somehow caught wind of my postprandial concerts and began assembling at the top of the stairs during their break, nodding their heads and tapping their mops in time with the music. I didn't mind, it was actually kind of nice to have an audience besides Jennifer Love Hewitt for once. 
I'd call out the titles. That was Slow Dance in Memphis. Now here comes Mentholated Chesterfield Blues. And the janitors would remain three flights up, silent except for the mop percussion, undisturbed by the repetition that already governed their working and non-working lives. Wake, mop, scrub, eat, TV, drink, sleep. These men had long since abandoned learning another song, regarding their daily monotony as something honorable, like religious martyrdom or death in combat, and they listened attentively to my every heartbroken and reverb-soaked word, as if it were gospel. It was good while it lasted, idyllic really, but the final day of school, the bell rang and the janitors filed out the door, no applause, no cheers, and I was faced with the prospect of a chemistry final I had neglected to study for, and a summer of lonely nights and locust chatter. This one's called Johnny Shoeshine, I said to nobody, my fingers striking the strings, and the stairwell was filled with the sweet sadness I had come to know so well. Okay, folks, now that we have drunk our fill of groping in the dark, it is time for the museum's final exhibit, entitled Staggering Toward Intimacy. After several barren years in the portico of solitary weekends, a small miracle resulted in my first and only long-term relationship with a co-worker at the newspaper where I was employed. Preserved for the ages of the artifacts it left behind, Our romance began with a series of flirtatious emails with subject headings such as Hot and Bothered and The Temple of My Desire, and by Re-Re The Temple of My Desire, we were regularly necking in the newspaper elevator to the strains of Feelings and The Girl from Ipanema, which play regularly on the museum jukebox. Unlike my previous entanglements, my affair with the co-worker blossomed into something worth watering, and before long we were living together in the subdivision of domestic tranquility. We alternated chores, we clipped coupons, and sunlight bathed our healthy, happy home. On weekends, we strolled through the park and discussed our famous heroin addicts. My girlfriend's was William Burroughs, and mine was Charlie Parker, and when we returned home, we made love on a Celiopostropedic, rolling and writhing on a space-age material originally designed for astronauts. I remember that she laughed at network news broadcasts, that she cried during the Elephant Man, and that she smelled like tropical fruit, no matter what soap or shampoo she used. I've tried to recreate her scent here in the museum, spending long nights with chemicals in the lab, but unfortunately, I've never succeeded. Even my closest approximations are but a pale imitation of her fragrance. Moving away from the subdivision of domestic tranquility, we encounter Sick Transit Gloria one year later, a reduced-scale mock-up of our apartment that shows the telltale signs of cohabitive wear and tear. Sarcastically scrawled reminders litter the fridge, animatronic fruit flies buzz over piled dishes, and the coffee table is split in two, 
a casualty of the great shouting match of winter 2006, I often stroll Sick Transit Glory after closing, trying to pinpoint when exactly things started to go wrong, but, alas, my repressive memory makes personal archaeology an inexact science. All I remember is a feeling of her slipping from my grasp, and a useless determination to not let go. Our final leg of the tour is the room where I now reside, bare-walled and furnished with a cot. It is here where I sleep and hope and dream and torture myself with self-recrimination. I would give them all up in a second, girls A through G and the anthropology major, if my ex-girlfriend would only purchase a ticket and stroll through the exhibits of the museum, listening through headphones to the audio narration and finally understanding my failings. If only she could see my futile stabs at love, she would realize unquestionably that my aim for her is true. And I know that one day she will return. She'll pass through unreturned ardor and the blue period and find me here on the cot, waiting, and she'll take my hand and lead me to the subdivision of domestic tranquility and will reenact intimacy for old time's sake, the tour groups staring and snapping photos as we whisper apologies and forgive past wrongs attempt to love each other as authentically as possible. Yeah. Uh-huh.